So I think I found my new favorite place. It's a tree right outside, a little patch of grass right outside some of the classrooms, overlooking the hills. You can see the hills in the background. Nice breeze. Very pleasant place to be during this corona crisis. We're locked in a lot of spaces behind a lot of nylon and plastics. And allowed some of the cars are traveling up and buses to deliver. But I want to talk with you today about the visionary who built this mountain. I know I've been putting out some videos on Facebook, those who have seen them, and Twitter, but I want to talk about it a little bit more extensively about my Rebbe Ravamital. It's 2020. It's 10 years after he was Nifter. I live with his presence on a daily basis. I think of him. I sometimes well up with tears thinking about him. How can I describe him to you? He was a man of Torah, a man of warmth, a man of song, a man of vision, a man of history. But he's also a man of stories. He told incredible stories. I actually have a series of about 20 different Ravami tell stories and what I learned from them. And I think others, obviously you learn different things and different people learn different things from different stories. But I want to talk about the two stories he told on that fateful night. I think it was 1968. I'd have to check the autobiography. 1968, there's a group of boys from the Tiv Meir, one of the top high schools in Israel, in Jerusalem. And it was obvious to everyone that those boys are going to Merkaz Harav, that's the yeshiva that the top elite boys in the religious Zionist world attend. And all of a sudden, there's a new yeshiva called something Haaretzion, opening in this newly liberated area, this barren mountain in the middle of a place called Gushetzion. Why should they go? Why will this yeshiva be different? Why should they cast their lot with this new yeshiva. So Ramita has all these boys gathered in his um, living room, in his salon, and give up Mordechai. And Yol bin Nun, now Rav Yol bin Nun, is the ultra bachar trying to steer this whole process forward. And I think Yaakov Medan, now Rabbi Yaakov Medan, has already signed up. And the big debate is, will another up-and-coming superstar, Elio Blumenzweig, now Rabbi Elio Blumenzweig, the Rosh Hashiva of Yerucham, I know a lot of people in Chutzlar, it's May not know some of these names, but these are the big names in the Dati Lumi Torah world in Israel. So, and they were all part of that first class. So, Ramitel told them two stories, and I want to share those two stories with you and how those stories reflect some of who he was. So, a man of stories, two formative stories that revolutionized the Torah world and how they changed the minds of that first group of students, and of course, all the students that interested to hear those stories but the messages which those stories capture. So I have to apologize because those of you who are listening and have been exposed to the Gush, everyone knows the story. You've heard the story so much that it's almost a joke. It's a code word. Oh, the crying baby. It's a phrase. Oh, come to Gush for the crying baby. So have you heard the story? I apologize. But I know a lot of you haven't heard the story. So let me tell you the story. You can look it up. There's actually a YouTube video about the story, which Gush educators across the world are telling that story to their Students, it's 20 years old, it's a little dated, but the story goes with Tzemach Tzedek, great, great Hasidish Rebbe. Those of you who know Chabad Hasidus, obviously comes from that whole Lubavitch um, dynasty, was traveling in Europe with his grandson. And they came to an inn where they had to stay overnight, waiting for the next train, waiting for the next passage. And the Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the grandfather, went to the inner room to learn. And his grandson learned in the middle room. They were each deeply engrossed in their learning. And then they heard a baby crying in the outer room. And Simach got up, bolted his learning, 
placated the baby, baby, and then walked back to his inner room to continue his learning. On his way back in, he passed his grandson, who was still deeply, deeply engrossed in his learning. And he told his grandson that if your learning makes you deaf to the cry of the baby, then it's less ideal. No learning can ever be meaningless. I remember quoting the story of the baby once in some journal that Yeshiva was putting out. I think I used the word, if your learning makes you deaf to the cry of the baby, your learning is hollow. And Rav Lichtenstein was not happy with that articulation. We sat there for 10 minutes trying to find a word that would convey that it isn't a perfect learning, but it's still a meaningful learning. Classic Rav Lichtenstein story in the middle of a Rav Amitel story. But that taught me a lot. I still don't have the word, but it's less than ideal. And Rav Amitel told those Talmidim in about 50 years, 51, 52 years ago, this will be a yeshiva where the Talmidim will hear the cry of the baby. The baby was crying in 1968. It was right after the Six-Day War, 25 years after, 20 years after the Holocaust. The needs of the Jewish people, the needs of Am Yisrael, the needs of Medina Yisrael. People don't realize that when this yeshiva was built, it wasn't just built as, as a response to a need or a contingency. There are two types of revolutions. There are revolutions that aren't self-conscious that they're being revolutionary, which can be very revolutionary. And then there are revolutions that are self-conscious, that you realize you're changing the paradigm. Rav Amital sat down with his father-in-law, the son of Rav Isserzal Meltzer, and said, let's create something called Hezder. Not a bidiyavet, not a solution to those boys who couldn't learn in Mir, Panavij, or Chevron, but a lechachila for our community that our best and brightest should attend to, that our best and brightest should should study in. And this is really the laboratory that has produced Hezder Lechachila. Those of you who aren't as attuned to life in Israel, there are close to 80 Hezder Yeshivas. I wonder how many will survive Corona because not all of them are that large and that established, but we hope they all will. This is where it all started. This is ground zero for the conscious effort to build Hezder. And there's so many laws and rules and gush that are 50 years old because Rav Amital didn't just think of it as Yeshiva. And it's a test and it's an experiment to see if they could propagate the concept of Hezder. Baby is crying. Jewish people need soldiers. Jewish people need scholar soldiers. If Amitav felt deep, deep affiliation with the Biakiva. And he would cry and say, how would I ever imagine that I'd be the first in Rabbi Akiva to teach Tamidei Chachamim who also serve in the army? That's what, that's what, that's what won me over. When I came, when he changed my seat a little, when I came to this yeshiva and just seeing these Ten colonels and ten commanders who had chest on their fingertips swept me off my feet. I said, I want to be like these people. I want to move to this country. I want to move to this location. Not that far from where I actually studied about 35 years ago. So I really did move to the place that I studied in. And Baruch Hashem raised my family here. That was the story of the crying baby. And it informs so much of Rav Amital. Rav Amital's name in Europe was Klein. Rav Amital came from Hungary. I'm hungry, so Hungary. Hungry, and, and he really conveyed the Alter Hain. He would tell us stories in Yiddish and stories of the Shtetl. Talk about this a little bit later. And there, there was a real feeling of being in a European yeshiva. Rav Amitel was convinced this was a continuation of the European yeshiva. As was Ravara. People don't get that because the dress here is a little different, and I don't wear a hat, and I look a little different, I don't wear a tie, and we're not yeshivas in a way that there's a real spirit that this is a continuation of the Yerpshi yeshivas, as they call them. We'd always have these panel conversations. How is Yeshiva Haratzion different from Velazhin? And the assumption was this is just Velazhin, and there were slight changes because we're here in Israel, we have to serve in the army, as we believe we have to serve in the army, we believe we have to worry about the nation at large. So there are changes and modifications that maybe in Bnei Brak they don't feel are worthwhile to introduce, or too dangerous to introduce, to be fair, but 
this is not a yeshiva that, that veered from the European models and, and what was accepted in those glorified, in those glor- glorious yeshivas and those glorified yeshivas. But his name in Hungary was Klein, small in Yiddish. And he changed his name after the Holocaust based in a Pesach in Micha, which says, V'hayasheiris Yaakov Kital, that the remainder of the Jewish people of Jacob, of B'nai Jacob, will be like dew, that will refertilize the Jews. Rav Amitah had this sense that he was on a mission for Am Yisrael. He missioned us. He missionized us. There's a mission. You can't just live your life without hearing the baby cry, without hearing the baby cry. Thank God I have two new granddaughters in my house. Hearing a lot of babies cry. <laughs> Not getting that much sleep. But it tells a very interesting story of Amitah that he was once driving home, deliberating whether to start this yeshiva, I think it was, and he was driving home from Tel Aviv to his home and give up Mordechai in Jerusalem, and he heard a story on the radio about a fire that broke out in a skyscraper in New York City. This is mid, circa mid-60s, and children were caught in the blaze and in the smoke, and they were on the windowsill trying to jump, but they were terrified to jump, and the parents were below trying to encourage them to jump because the mattresses and the foam pads were all prepared, and the children just couldn't jump. They were too frightened, and they just died. And Ravamitha kept thinking to himself, what a pity is it? it is that the older generation, in this case the parents who are waiting down below, have an important message that could save the life of the younger generation, but they just don't have the language to convey that. And what a loss it is, the loss of life. He then arrives home, and there's a fire in Gibbat Mordechai in one of the local apartment buildings, and there's an old woman caught in one of the rooms, and he bangs on the window, and he breaks the glass or opens the door, gets her out of the fire, and that he saw as a sign from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that he did have the language to save people from burning fires, and he could provide some solace for the Jewish people after the Holocaust. And what we were always amazed with Rav Amital is he didn't feel guilt after being spared. So many Holocaust survivors felt guilty. Why were so many of their friends, so many of their family murdered and they survived? Rav Amital felt mission, felt very conservative in nature to protect the remaining Jews after the Holocaust. So he hit the baby crying the mission for Am Yisrael, the name change, Amital, I'm going to be due to repollinate, to refertilize people, building a new model of the yeshiva that really has changed. Where, where would where would Israel be today without Hezlo? And it really all stems from around. There wasn't the first. There are other yeshivas that came before, but again, it was the first methodical approach to building a Hezlo program with a message. This is L'Chadchilo. This is the ideal. I'm going to send our children. Even today, there are some Hezder yeshivas where the Rabbanim will not send their children to Hezder yeshivas, and, and that's fine. It's perfectly acceptable for a Rebbe to teach in one yeshiva and not believe the, that to be the ideal Hashkaf and send his children. I don't think it's the most powerful form of chinuch. I want to send my children to Rebbeim who uh, voice a chinuch message they fully believe is appropriate, not just for their students, but for their own children, but different people of different flavors and different interests. But that's... That's the flavor here. So it remains to this day such a powerful part of this yeshiva. By the way, my kids don't go to gush. <laughs> they don't go to this yeshiva because they want to be far away from me. They go to the other gush. It's called Yerucham itself. It's a different than this, but it's pretty much an extension in many ways, a derivative of, of what's going on in this mountain. And uh, his whole approach to the Holocaust, he, he taught me that Kiddush... See, I, I grew up in a very, very small place. If you measure where I was raised in the sweep of Am Yisrael. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Great place, great place to be a Jew, great place to learn. But my whole sense of Jewish identity was very, very shrunken. And I'll talk about this a little bit later. And I was taught that a Kiddush Hashem can be wrapped up into the following equation. We're going to the baseball game. Act appropriately, act with manners. Because if you don't, and if you throw your popcorn on the floor, 
they're going to look at the Jews and they're going to say the Jews are vildechayas, the Jews are disorderly, the Jews are impolite. It's going to be a kiddush. But if you act kindly and you clap nicely during the game, it will be a kiddush Hashem. And, and that's kiddush Hashem and chil Hashem. It's important, but to use those words when we use those same words about Rabbi Akiva and the Aserogim Malchos and victims of Jewish struggle, and I'm going to be like Rabbi Akiva because I'm eating my popcorn nicely at the baseball game, he just didn't register. Now, obviously, you can use the term differently. No one says they're meant to mean the same thing. But all of a sudden, Rav Amital brought into my mind that Hashem is infinite, Hashem is immortal, Hashem is uncontainable, but His presence in this world in this world, is a product of Jewish experience, Jewish history, the state of the Jews. And when the Jewish people rise, his presence is felt more palpably. When the Jewish people suffer, his presence regresses, and that's a Chilol Hashem, and that Kiddush and Chilol calibration is part of Rebbe Kiva. Rebbe is an extreme form of Kiddush Hashem because he's willing to martyr himself, so he, he deeply, deeply concretizes Hashem in this world. And Chas Hashem, you create a terrible Chilol Hashem, but it's all part of the same arc, part of the same trajectory. How is Hashem faring in this world? How are the Jews drawing HaKadosh Baruch Hu into this world? And number two, the index to measure that isn't just how many pages of Gemara are being studied, how many tefillos are davened, how many chesed. The index is what is the state holistically of the Jewish people? And now that we have a state of Israel, that question has autonomous meaning. Not that we should ignore how many black Gemara are being learned, how many Tfilos are davened, how much chesed is being performed, how many Shulchan Aruch. But what is the state of Israel like? How are we prospering? Are we gaining? Are we developing? Are we becoming a superpower economically, diplomatically? Is the state of Israel respected? That's also reflective of the Jews. And the state of affairs of the Jewish people, literally the state, not just the state of affairs in an allegorical sense, that affects Hashem's presence in this world. That creates a Kiddush Hashem, or if the Jewish people decline, that creates a chidol Hashem. And Ramital cast for us the Holocaust in those terms. The Holocaust was an assault upon HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the dark period in which the Jewish people were trapped was a dark period in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence was barely visible because evil had conquered the world. And though you cannot, God forbid, align Medina Yisrael with the Holocaust, you cannot justify or reconcile or answer because Ramital taught us the Holocaust was too big for the human mind to grasp and to crystallize. Certainly the Chilol Hashem of the Holocaust had to be somewhat responded to by the Kiddush Hashem of Dinas Yisrael. So this hearing the baby cry created a sense of Jewish identity, historical affiliation, where are the Jews heading? It turned the whole book of Shir Hashirim into the most meaningful safer. And I like to plug my own Shirim, but I very, very insistent every year during the Herzog Tanakh study days to teach Shir Hashirim. I feel for myself, I just gave a Shirim Hashem on the role of gardens. It's being recorded. It'll be filmed next week. or not filmed, but, but uh, posted next week. The story of the Jewish people, the struggle of the Jewish people, the journey of the Jewish people throughout history, the Kedusha, Kodesh Kedushim, there would be a Kiva. So in Shir Hashirim. He would daven on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and his davening would... I, I daven, I listen to his voice. There are minyanim across the world that just gather for Shaniyam Kippur just to daven and Rami tells Nusach. And he would break down and cry every time he got to a part that discussed the toll of Am Yisrael, the struggle of Am Yisrael, the persecution of Am Yisrael. Mim komo, ah, 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 
When he reached Fifen Barachama Avliyamo, he just break down and start crying. Barachama Avliyamo. Or when he talked about Yachad Kulam Kedusha Lachayish Aleishu, that we are Mekadish Akadish Baruch with the Malachim. He didn't cry when he talked about Akadish Baruch Hashem doesn't need our kid. He cried when he talked about Am Yisrael, when he heard the baby crying. And it just manifested itself in so many areas of our chinuch, of, of, uh, of when he joined the government in 1996 and took a lot of flack for joining post-Rabin assassination, joining a left-wing government headed by none other than Shimon Perez. And he told us why. And you can look at the video. It's a great video. I was saying with the Talmudim this morning. I remember listening to that speech explaining why he joined the government in 1996 from the women's section in the base madras because my two little girls who each just had girls so the now mothers were little kids and i had to pick them up from gums so i dragged them along i wanted to hear of amita that was sitting with me in the women's section and he said he joined for two reasons and two reasons like because he was such a leftist and because he wanted to be a government minister in 1996 for two reasons a because it was feared that the government was going to draw boundaries then between the Palestinian country and Israel, and he wanted to try to save as many of the settlements as he could. So he was joining a left-wing government to work from within to try to save settlements, which he was a major part of, which was one of the largest settlement blocks in Israel. And without this yeshiva, which is that Ramitel's pioneering effort, which doesn't become what it is today, certainly not in the flavor that it is today, probably not even the magnitude. And second of all, because he felt that the assassination of a Jewish Israeli prime minister by Yeshiva Bachar, trained in our world, the Hezder world, that was a Chilal Hashem. Let's be honest. And a Chilal Hashem of that magnitude required some response. And he was being invited to be a minister in the government, not because he had economic skills or because he was diplomatically, or he was invited simply because he was a rabbi in a Rosh Hashiva. And he was being invited on that note, under that on that Tekken, under that premise, because the government wanted to have a religious personality, a religious symbol in the government. He was being invited on that premise. And he thought it was a Kiddush Hashem that a Rebbe, a Rosh Hashiva, should be invited to join a Jewish government. And it was particularly necessary in the wake of this tremendous Chil Hashem. So every part of our lives was wrapped up to Kvot Shemayim. Can I draw Hashem into this world? And of course, eating popcorn nicely at a baseball game is part of it, but it just seems so minuscule to me to talk about Rebbe Akiva and Moshe, little Moshe Tarragon at the stadium eating popcorn. Now we create it integrated. It's Rabbi Akiva, it's the state of Israel, it's Jewish epic experience, and it trickles down to little Moshe at the stadium eating his popcorn kindly and politely. But it created this band where my behavior represents a Kodesh Baruch in this world across the entire spectrum. He talked a lot about anti-Semitism, and he reminded us, I've talked a lot about this, and I've given sure about this profusely the last couple of years, that they don't hate us because of geopolitics, because of theology, because of Aryan race, and because of Mendelian genetics. They hate us because we received Hashem's Torah. We are his proxies. We challenge the world to higher ground. We stand for monotheism. We stand for morality. They hate us because we challenge them. They're our conscience, and they don't like looking at their conscience. And that's part of being Amisol, not to feebly fatalistically accept anti-Semitism, but to realize it's part of this long journey of a people chosen to represent Hashem in this world, and He loves us because we're willing to stand by His side, even through thick and thin, and to be respondent to that call and to sense the Kedusha. Let me put it a different way. I grew up in a more Haredi setting, and I obviously made the world move to live in a more national religious world. 
And I don't call myself national religious. I don't call myself Haredi. I think those labels are suffocating and they're a poor excuse for building your own internal world of Avodah Hashem. I happen to live in a Datilomi world. I happen to operate within that world. I don't get invited too often to speak in Lakewood. I don't get invited too often to speak in Mirror. I get invited to speak in this world. I teach in this world. So that's not who I am. But why did I decide to move to this world? All sorts of reasons. But there's something very pure and holy about the Haredi approach of insularity and closed, protected, pure, less exposure, less filth. And I appreciate that. And I live in a world that's very out there, very exposed and very encountering, very integrated. And I think I can justify for myself why I live in that world. But when I ask myself, where does my Kedusha come from? Where does my heart come from? Where does my feeling of transcendence? It comes from not only the Torah I learned, but my people and the holiness of a Jew. And I'll talk about the holiness of a particular Jew later, but in this case, the holiness of Am Yisrael. And I think it's what Rabbi Kiva meant when he talked about Shira Shira, I mean, Kodesh Kedushim, because it chronicles the, 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 the narrative of Jewish history. That was the first story. Second story he told that first group in 1968, 1969, 1968, about a Rebbe whose chassid gets caught for stealing, and the Rebbe comes into the jail cell and consoles him and bails him out. And the next two months later, the same wretched chassid gets caught stealing, and the Rebbe comes to the jail cell and bails him out and consoles him, and you're failed, and I'm fallen, and you're flawed, and I have my own limitations, and we all suffer, let's go out together. Then a couple of weeks later, the same chassid gets caught a third time. Rebbe comes in, endless patience, endless mercy, endless understanding, endless embrace, takes the chassid out. At a certain point, the Rebbe dies. And the chassid, a couple of months after the Rebbe's death, gets caught another third time, fourth time, fifth time stealing. And they call the Rebbe, the Rebbe's dead. They call the child and the successor to the Rebbe, who's a bit more fanatical, a bit more vigilant, and says, comes into the jail cell and starts berating and scolding the chassid, you're an embarrassment, you're an insult to my father, how could you do this, how could you, how could you? And the chassid, the ganav, the thief starts crying, he says, you don't understand something to this young whippersnapper of Rebbe, he says, you don't understand. Ich bin a Russia. I'm a Russia. Ich bin ich kein Tzadik, I'm not a Tzadik, ich bin a ganav, I'm a ganav, ich bin a Russia. He looks at the sun and says, you... Du bist a Rebbe for Tzadikim. You're a Rebbe for the Tzadikim. It's gleich to sign a Rebbe for Tzadikim. It's easy to be a Rebbe for Tzadikim. Ich bin a Rasha. Ich darf a Rebbe for Rishayim. I need a Rebbe for Rishayim. He says, Sein Tata, your father. Ask sign a Rebbe for Rishayim. He was a Rebbe for Rishayim. I need a Rebbe for Rishayim. So Rav Amital told us, he said, there are plenty of yeshivas today for Tzadikim. I'm going to open up a yeshiva for Rishayim. I started laughing. And what I think he meant, I never really asked him, but what this story meant to me is, we spend so much time glibly assigning who's the tzaddik and who's the rasha. And let's face it, we're all a tzaddik and a rasha. And at some points we're more of a tzaddik and at some points we're more of a rasha. And instead of creating labels and you're the tzaddik and you're the rasha and you're in and you're out, let's just appreciate that every Jew has potential. I'll talk about how this touched me, turned me into chasidus and has purity. And let's try to ratify and augment and amplify that potential rather than assigning tags to the Russian, to the Tzaddik. And I think that's a very deep ethos in the Hester world in general, and certainly in this yeshiva, within its light. I think the yeshivas that are far more liberal-minded in terms of who they accept, I don't just mean boys from America, I mean boys. <laughs> Some of you may know that in Israel there's a lot of diversity, a lot of diversity, a lot of experimentation, and we're much more 
uh, it's conservative with a small C. What much more toned down will we accept? But just the ethos here in yeshiva. I have many, many metaphors for yeshiva. And one time, maybe I'll give a list of all my metaphors, how I see a yeshiva. But one of them is a campfire, a really big campfire. And people come to sit around the campfire and get what they can. Some sit closer, some sit farther, some get more, some get less, some get heat, some get light, some get friendship. It's just a campfire. And I grew up in a yeshiva in which that, or in a world in which that message, to me at least, came across as very abrasive. I felt as if it's clear in and out. And if you're in and you follow the rules, then you're the tzaddik and you have a place. And if you're not, there was a word they used in Yiddish, which hurt me a lot in retrospect. But even during the time in Oisvar, if you're an outcast, you have no place, you don't belong. It's my way or the highway. And I'm not impugning that approach. I'm saying to me, it didn't resonate. It didn't hit my neshama. My neshama was never swept up by that idea. And my neshama was swept up by this idea. And this, and here is probably the main thesis of today's shir. It's not just hearing the baby cry and the concern for Am Yisrael as an idea, as a concept. Sometimes it's easier to sympathize with a concept. It's the love for the Pashat the Rebbe Yisrael. Not just Knesset Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Rebbe Yisrael. Your average, ordinary Jew. Sadik Russia, Tamar Chacham. Of course, you can hear Hasidus in here. Those of you who have any exposure to Hasidus, is ABC of Hasidus. Avas Yisrael. Every Jew is a chelak a lokamimal, part of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. That purity is inalienable. It can't be sullied. Every Jew is redeemable. Basher Husham. That's why Rav Amital, I think, was always classified a chassid. It wasn't just because he was saying, because he was warm, he was, and he was, but this is one of the and not that Rav Lichtenstein never believed in that, but it just wasn't his primary message. It wasn't his primary message. Someone asked me last week, who is Rav Amital's Rebbe? And I, th- I think I think I have a good shot, a good chiddish. He grew up with his grandmother, whose husband passed away, and his grandmother moved into their home. And his memories are of his grandmother saying to him every day. Memories of his grandmother polishing his shoes every day. His memories of his grandmother fasting every Monday and Thursday from Tishrei to Nisan, not including if there was a fast day. So there was a servitude, she fasted three days that week. Because when one of her children was conscripted to the army for World War I, she began to fast and she always kept the net there. Rav Amital grew up with simple Pashida from Kite. And that's what I missed the most about him. The ability to have that barometer of real Pashida, sincere, authentic from Kite. And it doesn't have to express itself in chumras. And sometimes chumras are, are taken, for, sometimes for less than sincere reasons. Rav Amital would always quote his grandmother. That in Europe, and I promise you, it's going to sound very harsh, and I don't mean to sound things that are maverick or kind of classic. I'm just trying to give you a, a window into a different world that you may not have that much exposure to. His grandmother would say that the expression from is Rashi Tevis in Yiddish for feel, rishos, full rishos, veinig mitzvahs, pay resh vav mem, full rishos, fear rishos, I forget, full of rishos and empty of mitzvahs. Full feel rishos veinig mitzvahs. Empty of mitzvahs and a lot of rishos. Sometimes from kai could be excessive and vigilante and judgmental and ostentatious and just a real why Rav Amital was very, very careful that chumros be delicately applied, properly applied, authentically applied. Remember, Tama once said, should I take the bruxes of chumros? You got ballistic at him. It's easy sometimes to get drawn into chumros, and it's important to get drawn into chumros, but sometimes it takes away from... There's a certain purity when you just see people whose avodas Hashem is stable, calm, 
balanced, easy, without having all the contortions of worrying about whether you ate this much of a kezayis and less than a kezayis and you recited the bracha this way or that way. It has to be a balance. Dude, don't get me wrong. So much of what Hashem is the tension and the balance, but Hoytel was a great, great balancer. So obviously he had rebellion. He didn't learn Bava Basra from his grandmother. But I think he really picked up a lot from his grandmother and, and those who've read his biography. He wasn't part of the Lithuanian yeshiva movement. He was part of the Hungarian world. And the Hungarian world was very, very different from the Lithuanian world. Less than to Lamdas, less than to Chakiras, less than to Reb Chaim, less than to Brisk, more than to Shalos Vichuvos. But also, there wasn't this schism between the yeshiva Bachrim and the Balabatim. Sometimes in yeshivos, if you want to mock an analysis that doesn't really hold water, that isn't really tight and rigid, you'll say, oh, that type of thinking, that's Balabatish thinking. And I know what they mean, and I agree that you have to learn how to create strict definitions rather than loose, sloppy ideas, because then all shots just falls apart, and all the logic becomes just very random and arbitrary. I know what it means, but I would never use the term Balabatish thinking in a disdainful way. And there is a little tension in the yeshiva world. Oh, chas v'shalom, should be a balabas. And in Hungary, it wasn't true. There was a ban. There was a a great chain from balabatim to people who went to yeshiva. Dafyomi was much more popular in Hungary, obviously, than it was in Lithuania. And and Bikias was much more popular. And that's why Rav Amitel never became the rub of his community and give up Mordechai. He just didn't want to be distant from balabatim. And I think that's something that's very deeply, deeply entrenched in my DNA and in our DNA, not to have the sense of separatism and elitism and we're better than and holier than. And it was a very, very grounding world that Rav Amital painted for us of respect and love for the Pashida Jew, respect and love for the Pashida Jew within ourselves as much as we try to be angels. We have to remember that we're human beings. Anshe Kodesh Tihirun Lu. Always quoted the Katske. He wants Anshe Kodesh Hashem, not Malachi Kodesh, Anshe Kodesh. And with that acknowledgement and with that acceptance comes the acceptance of limitations and of weaknesses and of flaws and just to accept our flaws and to forgive ourselves with, for our flaws and to try to forgive other people for their flaws. So I just miss Ravamital so much because he's just a really warm, forgiving, embracing, balancing, steadying, calming, pH-adjusting human being. pH was right there at 7. It wasn't too acidic. It wasn't too base. It was just very, very balanced. Um, I was speaking with my children this past Shabbos, and you may disagree with this. Feel free to disagree. And two of my daughters just had children, and my son just got engaged. So there's a lot of a lot of happening in our family. And here I am, the, the father of the family, now, the grandfather of the family, Baruch Hashem. And I was talking to them about raising children. And I told them how raising children is a balance between creating pressure and ambition and motivation and goals. And between creating calm, happiness, personal self-esteem, sense of well-being, easygoing nature. And it's really easy to fall into one mode at the expense of the other mode. It's really easy to push your children till you push them into depression. And it's really easy just to create a soft pillow for them where everything is rainbows and sunshine. And how do you create that balance? So I encourage them to try to create that balance. And then I also said, if you ever get to a fork in the road where you have a dilemma and you question whether to push harder or push softer and you want to push towards greater ambition, but perhaps at the risk of creating less psychological well-being, 
My belief is you have to be machmer on personal well-being and make your own ambition and just protect people's inner world, especially in a world that's full of stress and tension and less family units to provide the basis of support. And I got this from Rav Amital, and I got it from a story, and I'll tell you my story as the aftermath of his story. He once went to a bris of a, I think it was a more Haredi part of his family, and they named the boy Truvia. And during the speeches, they were referring to him as, sorry, as Truvia Eloy. So Ramitah said, I, I must have missed something. I didn't know they had a second name called Eloy. And the parents said, no, we, his name is Trivia, but we're calling him Trivia Eloy because we want him to get accustomed to hearing himself referred to as an Eloy. Ramitah did not like that. His message to us was just to create Yereshamayim, happy people, good people, menschlichtik people, of the Hashem. And now 10 more tells us in, 10 less tells us that obviously you want to shoot for the stars and you want to be ambitious, but just protect. So he got up and talked about that during the address that he shouldn't be an Eloi. Eloi in Yiddish means a genius. So about 15, 16 years ago, one of my nephews was having his bar mitzvah. And some people from the other side of the family were heaping expectations upon him. Should be this and you should be that. Now you're 13, you have to become the next this and the next that, the next this and the next that. And I was the last speaker and I remembered of Amital. And one of the speakers said, Now that you're 13, no more chocolates, no more chocolates. And I got up and said, No, keep eating your chocolates. I say his name, I don't want to embarrass him. If he's watching this video, he knows who he is. And that became a running joke between himself and myself. Whenever I would see him, I say, Keep eating your chocolates, keep eating your chocolates. Don't give up your childhood. Don't give up your relaxation. Make sure that internally you're a good husband, you're a good person. I've lived long enough to see what intensity you can do to people. And you can really be passionate. You can burn people in your radius. You can burn people. And I don't think HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to incinerate people around us. I don't think that's his goal. I think he wants people that are that create ease and comfort and joy and warmth and love and, and, and simcha. In their midst. And how do you do that? I, I struggle with that also. I, I lead a very, very driven and tension filled life. I want to accomplish more. I want to learn more. I want to grow more. But how do I bottle that passion and draw off of its energy without crushing people around it? You're not always successful with it. Then I get back to this nephew of mine at his Ufruf. I said, Here's a chocolate bar. I gave him a chocolate bar. And I said, Now it's your wife's job to make sure you keep eating chocolate. I just saw him the other day. And, Baruch Hashem, she's doing a great job. She's listening to this year. Anyway, it also talked about how we view secular Jews, and it's obvious that secular Jews were not just important because they're candidates for Kirov, and they're about to become firm, but because they're Jewish, and because their Jewish expression, even if it isn't religious, even if it's cultural, a lot of her crook here is valuable because there's a Jewish heart, there's a Jewish stamp, and even if it seems far afield from Shulchan Aruch and far afield, it's still of value. I'm not talking about humanism in general. That's an entirely different conversation. But certainly Jewish, secular Jews. These are the two stories that shaped that first class. The story of the crying baby and sensitivity to the Jewish people and Jewish history. The story of the Ganav in jail and the Rebbe Furushayim and the acceptance and the love and the celebration of the Pashid Yid in your world and the Pashid Yid within yourself. These are the two formative stories of Yeshiva Haratzion. These are the two stories that shaped my life. I hope this gives you a little taste of why I miss him so much. Is Neshama Shadav